0: Would you stand with me, please? The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoah, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said... The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel weathers. The word of the Lord. As we begin, let me offer a quick and brief aside as to some of the changes that you'll see coming in the next, uh, well, in the next week, actually. As of the first Sunday in October, which is next Sunday, we will begin practicing weekly communion as a church. This will necessitate a few uh, minor changes. We're going to adopt uh, a little bit older and a little bit longer communion liturgy. It's the old Geneva liturgy that Calvin used and... Um, as we do that, we're also going to rotate some elements so that every week it's not exactly the same and doesn't become overly repetitive. But as a result of doing that and also needing to schedule different things like baptisms and reception of members, we are uh, going to a slighter, uh, slightly more brief uh, sermon. And uh, as a result of that, you'll see that the passages will probably be in general a little bit shorter. I don't think you'll notice a huge difference uh, <laughs> unless you're my kids. Uh, I don't know if you remember, uh, if you've been around Rockwell Prez for a little while, we used to have an intern. His name was Cameron Schaefer. And Cameron got up to preach for his first time. He had never preached before, and uh, as many first time preachers are, he was rather nervous. But he did something that I've never seen before since. He uh, proceeded to take about a 32 minute sermon and preach it in about 16 and a half minutes. <laughs> He spoke faster than anyone I'd ever uh, heard. And the really funny part of that is that I have one child who will routinely say, Dad, you remember Cameron's sermon? I say, yeah, I do. He'll say, that was a good sermon. And especially on days that I have the tendency to go long. So you may be excited. Um, and if we start going too long, we're just going to have the musicians come up and cue the music. And we'll work our way down. We take up this morning the book of Amos. Now, at Rockwell Press, part of our tradition, the Reformed tradition in which we exist, a high priority is taking seriously the entire counsel of God, and that means that we will uh, often we, we kind of rotate between a New Testament book, and an Old Testament book, and then a systematic consideration, which means you take a subject and evaluate it from a number of different places in Scripture. So we find ourselves back in the New Testament, taking up one of the minor prophets. Amos is the minor prophets or the shorter prophetic books. Uh, in Jewish uh, tradition, it would be called the book of the 12. And Amos is one of those. And one word I want to offer in, um, in terms of uh, prophecy is that uh, when you hear the word prophecy in some cultures of the church, you have a tendency to think, oh, this is about the future, a prophet is someone who predicts something coming in the future. And that, there's truth to that. That certainly does happen. But that's not really the main uh, vocation of a, of a prophet. If you look at prophetic literature, the vast majority of the time, a prophet shows up to a people or to a king and says, Hey, this is the law. This is the covenant. You have fallen away from it and are sinning against it. I'm going to prosecute you. Uh, according to the law. It's really not a bad place to be that when you hear the word prophet, you think lawyer. Prophets more often than not act as God's covenantal lawyers against the people to call them to account for their failure to be obedient. And that's very much the way that Amos works. He's going to go, he's from Judah, he's going to go up to Israel, and he's going to say, listen, you have deviated from God's expectations. You have set the covenant aside, you've moved in the wrong directions, And I'm here to tell you, to warn you, that judgment is at hand. As we enter the book of Amos, just by considering the first two verses, it's fairly remarkable how well the first two verses are unquestionably intended to introduce to us the book as a whole. And what it introduces to us is who Amos is, the context in which his message is going forward, and what his message is going to be. So my hope is at the end of the sermon, you'll know in general the main thrust of the book of Amos, and you'll know why we're taking it up as a church. And the way we're going to get there is to consider you know, who is Amos, what is, uh, where is he speaking and why is he speaking, and then what is, uh, what is the message that he's setting forward. So if you look just at the beginning of verse 1, right off the bat, we learn that uh, Amos is from among the shepherds of Jehoah. Now, Tekoa was a small and unremarkable town about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. There's nothing much to be said for it. And uh, Amos is a shepherd. And being a shepherd is a pretty unremarkable profession in, uh, in Amos's day. So, I mean, essentially what the opening is telling us, which is a bit surprising because sometimes you get uh, knowledge about a prophet's family... Sometimes you get knowledge about a prophet's schooling. Sometimes you get a knowledge about a prophet's miracles that he's performed. Amos is a remarkably unremarkable figure. It's almost as if you were excited to open a book of God's Word, and you said, you know, Joe, from among the retail workers of Roy City. You think that you're not expecting anything very significant after that opening line. It's pretty routine. Right? It's pretty ordinary. And that is very much who Amos is. Right? Immediately, we might think we would prefer to have someone who is more exciting, someone who has a better resume, someone who will act as a better representative on God's behalf. And this reminds us that God so often upends all of the values of success or importance right, that we have. He turns our kingdoms upside down By working through that which is foolish or that which is weak to demonstrate his wisdom and his strength. So here is a nobody. It would be the very spokesperson for God against an entire nation. No small task. It makes us wrestle with how we think about our call when it comes upon us. When God approaches us and invites us not only to grace, but sometimes he also calls us to particular tasks to extend his kingdom. And when you sense that call coming upon you, what, what is your reaction? My kids were watching Captain America, the first Captain America uh, this week, which, if you're not familiar with the story of Steve Rogers, it takes place in World War II. Steve Rogers, who will become Captain America, is actually a very scrawny and weak kid. He's very noble and virtuous. He's willing to stand up for the underdog, but he spends most of his time taking a beating. And yet, like most kids his age, uh, during World War II in Brooklyn, he feels a call to go and join the U.S. military and go and fight against the Nazis. So he takes that up, but he arrives right in, in training camp, and you look at him compared to the other people preparing to be a soldier, and you think to yourself, what are you doing here? And even Steve thinks that to himself to some extent. But there's even a more particular call that comes upon Steve Rogers. Right? There's a test... A grenade is thrown. Steve Rogers throws himself on the grenade to protect his fellow servicemen. Now, again, it was just a test. But as a result of demonstrating the integrity of his heart and his willingness to sacrifice himself on behalf of his comrades, he's chosen then to go into an experimental program, right? And through science and technology, becomes a super soldier, and hence you have the birth of Captain America with supernatural powers. But leading up to that time, right, Rogers will sit down, even as he's chosen for the program, and talk to the doctor and say, "You know, Why me? Right? I'm, not, I'm not worthy of this call that you've placed upon me. And the doctor will say, No, actually you are because of the nobility you've demonstrated. I can make someone physically strong, but I can't give them a good heart. And there are such echoes of the American narrative within the Captain American story. right? By no coincidence... It's an important narrative that comes out, just like Wonder Woman, actually, of World War II and helps to define uh, us as a nation, really. But what the echo you hear is that Steve Rogers actually has earned what is being bestowed upon him. And that's the story of the meritocracy, that you know, if you work hard, even if you don't have natural giftings or wild talent, if you work hard and are diligent, you will be, you will be blessed. You will get what you deserve, what you've earned. Now, we might all wish that society worked in that fashion, uh, but it doesn't. That aside, the more important thing that I'm trying to point up to you is it's not the way that God works, and it's not the way the story of grace goes. In other words, some of you know that you have been called, but you are constantly saddled with this notion of, am I worthy of this call? Why should it come upon me? And you evaluate yourself. And then you think, well, I had better do more to earn it. Just like Steve Rogers wrestles. But it's the story of God's call that is grace. It's the story that comes upon Abram, who's worshiping foreign gods in a foreign land. And God calls him out of Ur and says, I'm going to make you Abraham. And it's the call of grace that goes to Saul, who's actually persecuting the church and killing Christians. And God says, no, by my grace, I'll make Saul, you, into Paul. It wasn't based, their call wasn't based on what they were able to achieve. It was based on God's decision. And that decision we don't have access to. Except that we know this, that in First Corinthians, Paul will say that God has a great tendency to choose those who are weak and foolish. Because through weakness, his strength is demonstrated. And through foolishness, his wisdom is demonstrated. So if you want to wrestle with your call, know that I can at least say this. You're probably weaker than most or more foolish than most. And perhaps both. And that's not, I hope you're not necessarily offended by that, right? I would say it to myself. And on one level, it's incredibly freeing. Because if that's not the story of the gospel, then, then the other story is right. And in some capacity, you had better figure out how to earn it to make sure that you deserve for God's grace to land upon you. And then it's not grace anymore. And then you carry an incredible burden. The other part of the Captain America story that's so, uh, not only American, but 20th century, is how does he become super? How do we have a Messiah, Savior figure who will save us and defeat the Germans through science and technology? As long as as we keep advancing, our knowledge grows, we build better machines and come up with better serums, we can control the human body, and eventually we'll conquer everything that ails us. That's the story of uh, the failed story of the 20th century, but it's also a story that we continue to buy into. Which you say? How many times do you have a problem or a challenge, or you feel yourself uh, to be inadequate in some way? And what do you do? You turn to a book on self-help. You buy a new program. You get into a new workout routine. Right? You turn to some mechanism or some routine that you think that will equip you for whatever call you feel has been placed upon you to move in a certain direction. And the call to Amos just cries out to us: "says Look, God chooses." those he will, and he equips them to do what he calls them to. And so the question isn't for you to say, well, am I really worthy of this? Nor is it to say, how am I going to equip myself for this call? Your question simply is to say, what is my call and how do I be faithful to it? And the rest is God's responsibility. So in what ways may God's call be upon you? Not only to be called into, into the grace of his family, but his particular call to perhaps to engage some activity, some mission, some endeavor on his behalf where the Spirit might lead you, are you willing to say, okay, I believe that you will equip me for this task? As so many places, we're frustrated that the Scriptures don't give us more. What must have gone through Amos's mind when this call came upon him? I bet he was shivering in his boots. A shepherd suddenly called to confront an entire kingdom. Right? A ridiculous assertion, unless God is behind it, whose strong arm, the Scripture tells us, is mightier than an entire army. So this is the figure, Amos, who goes forth to speak God's words. Well, when and where is he speaking them? What's the context that Amos is going to speak in through the course of the book? If you continue to read, uh, the ver- verse 1 tells us that Amos spoke, uh, during the reigns of King Uzziah of Judah and King Jeroboam of Israel, who was is the son of Joash, and know that he's often referred to as Jer- Jeroboam II. If you, knew, if you know a little bit of Israel's history, you may get a little confused. And, but two Jeroboams are going to come up a little bit this morning. So just to be clear, uh, after David and Solomon reigned, right, there was civil war in Israel. And Israel divided into two different kingdoms, one in the north, which went on to be called Israel, and one in the south, which was called Judah, Jeroboam the first, the first ruler of Israel in the north. The Jeroboam that's identified in Amos, right, were a couple hundred years after that civil war. And Jeroboam now in the north is often referred to as Jeroboam the second. Now, the reason this Jeroboam is important, Jeroboam the second, is because he was a By earthly standards, a very successful king. He expanded Israel's borders significantly. And as a result of expanding borders, they took in more possessions, more loot. But they also had more lands paying tribute or taxes into Israel. Which resulted in Israel being pretty flush. It's one of Israel's most affluent periods. In fact, the only time that Israel will know greater wealth is when the kingdoms were before civil war under David and Solomon. Now, the reason this is so important is because, and you may think or even look back to the confession we prayed today, which is taken directly from Amos. And you see that Amos is going to take direct aim at the way that affluence has caused Israel to move away from God. In other words, one of the major, perhaps the most prominent theme in the book of Amos is that as a result of their money and their wealth, They have cast righteousness to the ground and move away from God. Now, can you think of a reason why we might want to consider Amos? Can you think of another people who has decided to cast righteousness to the ground for the luxury and leisure and pleasure that we enjoy by virtue of our affluence? I think Amos is a pretty uh, poignant voice for the context in which we exist. Even the secular world is realizing that we are costing ourselves by our addiction and our foolishness as expressed in our own affluence. A great example of this, which many of us perhaps will relate to, is uh, the existence of HGTV, which before 1994 uh, did not exist. And while it gets off to a rocky start, around 2000, it eventually hits its stride by realizing that Americans have an addiction of watching houses uh, be recreated and dreaming of what they can do then in their homes and of what is possible with a little elbow grease and uh, some hard work. Uh, HGTV is owned by Scripps Networks Interactive and sold this summer for $11.9 billion, chiefly because HGTV is now the third most popular cable network in the country. Right. This is a channel that we love to watch. Uh, there was an article that was examining kind of our interest in watching the show and what it does to us and how it affects our spending, and they, uh, they profiled a bunch of different shows on HGTV, but one that they uh, focused on was Fixer Upper. Now, if you haven't seen Fixer Upper, it's a show that highlights Chip and Joanna Gaines, a couple that lives with uh, their kids in Waco, Texas, and they A buyer chooses a house, and Chip and Joanna show up, and Chip kind of bumbles and swings a sledgehammer and pretends to do some demo. Uh, Joanna redesigns the house. At the end of the show, you show up at the house. They unveil it to the buyers, and they are uh, thrilled and ecstatic at how the house has been reimagined and recreated. So... Now that you have the general idea, this is what one, uh, the author of this article, had to say about uh, the show, Uh, speaking at the. He's kind of focusing on the end reveal. They swoon, they marvel. They are like game show winners, and their gratitude to Chip and Joanna makes them like, seem like the Gaineses are their generous benefactors, not if the premise of the show is to be believed, tradespeople whom they have paid to do a job. Nothing makes the buyers lose their composure like the kitchen. How beautiful it is. How stunning to see it compared with before pictures. Nothing bad could happen to a family who has a kitchen like that. It's too pretty, too calming, too clean. It's too full of Chip and Joanna's radiant good cheer and their careful understanding of what each family most wants. You said you wanted a place for Caleb to do his homework while you're making dinner. So we have built in this desk next to the island. Caleb's not going to do his homework at that stupid desk. <laughs> On some level, we all know that. But the dream of a boy sitting happily in his mother's kitchen, filling out his worksheets while she sips a big bubble glass of chilled Chardonnay and cooks what? Quickie quesadillas, three step lasagna in her fantastically overbuilt kitchen is a powerful one. And for a few happy act three minutes, we dream that little dream too. Link, right? Right? Who doesn't want that to be true, that picture of reality as portrayed on uh, Fixer Upper? And yet, time would fail us if we simply discuss the economic impact that such shows and people who follow such shows and make decisions based on such shows has had. Right? Shouldn't, as the author of this article suggests, shouldn't we be in a little bit of mourning given the radically significant financial crisis that we just went through in 2008, largely being based on the bursting of the housing bubble, which now is clear there were many factors that affected the real estate bubble, but the chief factor, right? the highest number of unprecedented walkaways for mortgages was not in the lower income bracket. It was not even an income bracket where people were buying single homes that were too much to afford. It was in the income bracket of people buying homes that they intended to fix up and flip. And they acquired too many, and as a result then of being upside down and not having any affinity or connection to the houses, they simply walked away. And that is the single biggest factor, right, in terms of the housing crisis. So the secular is saying, listen, what are we doing to ourselves? All right, we find the numbers going right back to where they were prior to the 2008 fi- uh, financial crisis. And just we go back to it. And this is just a secular voice. There's no reference to religion, no reference to faith. He's just saying, we're being profoundly foolish. The average American household has no savings. That means the average American household is one crisis away from being in financial straits. We live in this place, and he's saying, this is crazy. But what if it's way more crazy than that? What if we're not just making decisions... That affect us financially, but what if we're walking away from God? And as Amos would say, what if we're throwing righteousness to the ground? What if we're sacrificing holiness for the pursuit of syncretism? And if you're not familiar with that word, we'll talk about it in a moment. But we realize with Amos's voice that there's great danger as he speaks into, uh, particularly the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel in the midst of uh, their affluence. Their affluence is dangerous. Their affluence has cost them. And so uh, we see the shepherd of Tekoa. We see that when he speaks in the context in which he speaks, we've talked about part of his message, but what, how is this going to be laid down and hit the people in terms of verse 2, which says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. God is likened to a lion bellowing, roaring, announcing his strength, announcing that all other living things should be careful uh, because he is present and he is the strongest person in the house. This is not a warm and inviting image. If you want to meet God, right? you don't want to meet him as a lion. But Amos is saying this is how God is as a result of the decisions, Israel, that you have made. He goes on to say that God utters his voice from Jerusalem. Now, that's almost a throwaway line when you're reading through it. Of course, the temple's in Jerusalem. God utters his voice from Jerusalem. But no, it's a a big deal for Amos to say that. Remember, he's from Judah to Israel. And here's where we go back to the first Jeroboam. If we back up a little bit, what happened after civil war? What happened in Israel? Well, suddenly they had a nation with no temple, right? The temple is in Jerusalem. It's in the southern kingdom of Judah, They no longer have access to it, so Israel feels pretty left out. Well, if you feel left out because you have no temple, what do you do? Build your own temple. Not only build one temple, why don't you build two temples? Which is what Jeroboam does. He builds one in the north in Dan and one in the south in Bethel. In those temples, he places golden calves to remind the people of which God brought them out of Egypt. If you fast forward a little bit more, Israel in the north and the capital of Samaria is where King Ahab and his wife Jezebel will build a temple to Baal, the Canaanite god of fertility. So what you see in Israel is a long history of choosing to pursue false gods. They've stopped worshiping Yahweh exclusively and said, yeah, we worship Yahweh to some extent, but we also want to worship uh, the golden calves. They might have done us good. Maybe we threw them to the side too quickly. And we also want to worship Baal, because sometimes Baal seems to serve Canaan pretty well. This is what we call syncretism. Syncretism is taking other religious values or other cultural values, mixing them in with what you consider to be your primary faith, until you get something like a beef stew of different values and beliefs, which is very much the context in which we live When we celebrate Yahweh and worship Jesus and say we identify that by that story, but then we go into our week and we spend more time watching HGTV than we do reading our Bibles or actually worshiping God, we come out to a place, we say, oh, well, God wants me to have this house. God wants me to build my forever home, especially since it's going to be what? A place of ministry. We do it all the time. We baptize our own desires that are culturally informed with Christian language so that we feel better about the decisions that we're making. This is what's going on in Israel in the north, but it's also what we see going on uh, for ourselves. So should we be concerned? Yes. Amos is announcing to Israel that judgment is coming. What does he say? The pastures are going to dry up. Drought is coming from the hand of God upon you. Mount Carmel is no longer going to be a place of any beauty. Now, to an agrarian economy, this is a very serious message. Essentially, the whole economy of Israel is going to crumble. They will suffer dramatically as a result of what God is bringing. But is not God simply bringing a physical devastating predicament that reveals to the people the condition of their heart? Their hearts are dry as a bone. Because they've spent so much time, centuries now, worshiping other gods and living out of their affluence rather than living in any real relationship with Yahweh. So God says, you don't understand. You won't listen to uh, my calls to repent. So let me show you exactly your condition. There's no water here. There's not going to be any water in the land and there's no water in your heart. You're, You're a place that is completely... Uh, without life. And this really is why we're taking up the book of of, of Amos. God's people had come into significant affluence, and as a result of that affluence, they were wooed and coaxed and tricked and delighted to move away from God and to celebrate life simply out of result of their affluence. And Amos to them says, okay, Well, God in his love and in his anger is going to just begin by bringing drought, which of course it says this is your spiritual condition anyway. In our affluence, we face the same temptations and we must ask ourselves and take Amos as a warning. Will we wait for calamity to come? Will you wait for God to visit something upon you that actually reveals to you your condition, whether as an individual or a household or for us as a church or for us as a people nationally? Will it come to that or will we hear the words of the prophets which are with affluence comes great temptation? We should be on guard. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at how easy it is to be wooed by riches. Your story is not unveiled in this world in a story of riches or a story of affluence or a story of privilege. It's revealed in this world in a story of sacrifice and humility. Would you help us to be on guard and in this season to hear the words of Amos? And to realize with great affluence comes great temptation. We would not desire to know you as the lion that roars. Nor would we desire to know you as the one who in love and anger brings drought. So instead, would you help us to be wise and to ask hard questions and to avoid the syncretism of our culture. And instead to truly be your people in holiness and righteousness pursuing You. We know this to be our call and ask that You would help us to be faithful and strong in living obediently to that call. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.